Well, good morning, everyone. It, uh, it really is good to be here this morning. Um, I genuinely didn't think at the uh, midpoint of this week that I would, truth be told, because I've been fighting or battling with a, a head cold or flu, and uh, I was concerned that it might have been something else. Uh, but God knew. And I thank you all for your prayers and for your support. Um, I've gone through various stages with this illness. I've gone through the Barry White stage, so I'm not going to sing to you. <laughs> You'd be pleased to know. <laughs> but uh, I am going to hopefully share uh, a message on this, this book, chapter uh, 5 of Ephesians, verses 15 to 20. Now, I think over the last few weeks, we have been truly truly blessed with our study of the book of Ephesians. Um, I think it's reminded us of the hope that we have, uh, the hope that we have in Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the one that provides our salvation. He's the only one that we can put our trust and hope in. We've discovered, thank you, we've discovered that as Christians, it's the Holy Spirit that lives within us and that equips us to live for Jesus by his grace. And as we explore the second part of the book of Ephesians, we discover the practical instructions and the guidance on how we as children of Christ must live for Jesus so we can glorify him. And now with this in mind, we, we will turn our attention to chapter 5 and verses 15 to 20, and we'll see that Paul gives some instructions to the church in Ephesus and he takes into consideration their particular circumstances, but we will see that there is a message that we can actually learn from this as well, for, and which applies for us today. So it's my prayer that as we meditate on God's word this morning, we'll be challenged to open up our lives to Jesus more fully and be filled with his spirit so we can glorify and honor Jesus in all things. Please join me in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have preserved your word and you've given us an opportunity to study this freely today. I ask that your Holy Spirit will rest upon us all now. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit to receive and understand this message today. I pray, Lord, that you will use these words for your honor and for your glory, and that you will hide me, Lord, and that you will lift up Jesus, Jesus, who is my Savior and my friend. Amen. Okay, so our passage today opens with a caution. Verse 15 tells us to look carefully on then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. As Christians, we are dead to self and living for Jesus. And we must therefore forsake our previous life of darkness and foolishness and now purposefully live a life that is characterized as wise. Paul here is reminding us that the basis of what Jesus has done for us is the provision of his Holy Spirit to live within us. And we are not to live as we once did, unwise or foolish, but rather as wise. But what does it mean to be foolish and what does it mean to be wise? 
Well, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us plainly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Understanding who God is, that he is holy, worthy of all glory, he is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer, and the one to whom we belong. This is the beginning of wisdom in every sense of the word. In contrast, Psalms chapter 14 verse 1 tells us, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Living life as if there is no God is foolishness. It's foolishness because instead of the true God having his rightful place in our lives, people find something else to occupy that space, namely ourselves. Humans make themselves the God of their lives and live for whatever they want under their own guidance. And Paul warns us that this is foolishness. This is unwise. He warns us that as Christians, we need to surrender our lives to Jesus and allow him his rightful place in our lives and no longer be characterized by living under our own guidance as if there's no God, but rather we need to be living under his spirit and allowing him to lead us and guide us in all that we do. In short, to live as if there is no God is foolishness. And as followers of Christ, we must have Jesus in his rightful place in our lives and surrender to him continually. Now, maybe this isn't a problem for you, but it has been for me. I have lost count. I have lost count of the times I have said to God, great, thanks for your help, Lord. Thanks for your help in my life. But I can take things from here. And uh, I've then taken the reins, as it were, or taken the wheel to my life and I've just fallen flat on my face in a mess of my own creation. Yet God is so patient and so tender with me, despite my foolishness at times. Praise God that he is the God he is. Now we saw last week in verses 2 and 8 of this chapter that Christians are now children of light, and we are to walk in Christ's love. Now, as children of God, we are no longer to walk as we once did, that is, for self and under our own strength, but rather we are to walk as children of light, grounded and rooted in God's love and living for him by his spirit living within us. What a wonderful joy that we can experience as a result. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Are the days in which we live in now evil? <laughs> yeah. Is evil something celebrated in the world today? Oh my goodness, it's shocking. Absolutely appalling. But how do we use our time? If we see that evil is being celebrated in the world, how do we use our time? How do we use this particular time? Not just the 24 hours of the day, but how do we use this era, this epoch of Earth's history that we are in? How do we use this season of life that God has blessed us with? Well, in answer to the first question, as we said, yes, it's a resounding yes. The days are evil. 
We saw in Genesis in our Genesis studies, following Adam and Eve's example of rejecting God's instructions, humanity became increasingly hostile and corrupt. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 tells us that by the time of Noah, the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Arguably, as we've already uh, acknowledged, uh, we're at that same point now. Daily we are seeing examples of man's inhumanity to man. It's just appalling and heartbreaking. Violence and evil are literally seen as children's pastimes with the release, the just, a, just the overwhelming release of more and more violent video games that children are feeding on on a daily basis. We're living in an age where violence and moral corruption are actively celebrated. Confusion truly is the order of the day, with the world simply doing whatever it thinks is right in its own eyes. There's a plurality of truth that's overtaken the Western world, and the church, sadly, is seeing the effect of this too in many ways. Now, as Christians, I believe that we need to be aware of the time in Earth's history that we are living and focus our attention and efforts on what God would want us to do. There are other distractions, perhaps, which may well be noble, but really we need to get, keep the main thing the main thing. I believe with all my heart, that we are living in a time when some of us here today will be alive to meet Jesus when he returns. Some of the events in the world that are happening right now in recent years undeniably point to the fulfillment of prophecies. And it's exciting for me to see how these things are unfolding just as Jesus told us they would in his word. But yet for many, for the unsaved, these events going on around the world are sources of terror and uncertainty, bringing uh, fearfulness and fright uh, to so many. One recent example that I'd like to share with you can be found in the River Euphrates. Some of you may be aware um, that in the last two years, the River Euphrates, which is actually 1,700 miles long, and at its widest point, close to two miles in width, is actually beginning to dry up at quite an alarming rate. Now, you're probably wondering, what's this got to do with anything? Well, the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 12, warns us that the book of Revelation, chapter 16, 12, warns us that the drying up of the Euphrates is one of the signs before Christ's return and will herald a time of immense evil and violence in the world. If you refer back to as well, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, and also Revelation chapter 9, you see that the river Euphrates drying up heralds the unleashing of some very, very terrible um, events. Now, I'm not saying this to scare anyone, but simply to remind us that we are living, I believe, at the eve of Christ's return. So how do we use our time? How do we spend our time? Now, we don't sadly have time to explore all the ramifications of 
the river Euphrates drying up this morning, but I'm sure it'd be something that you'll want to explore in your own time as well. And I really want, I don't want anyone to leave here frightened. I want us to leave here encouraged that God has given us his word and has given us a whole list of prophecies to tell us these things will happen, then I will return. So we are, we are blessed to know what's happening and why, and praise God, Jesus will return. So I feel that as Christians, our time here right now, God has given us, is for us to really focus on keeping the main thing the main thing. God has asked us to share the gospel message to a dying world. Every day, God is placing people in our lives who he wants us to come alongside and to share what we know of Jesus and his love. It's very easy for us to pass up the opportunities to speak for various reasons, and we'll talk about some of those in a moment as we explore more of these verses. It's very easy for us to get distracted and talk about other things and you know, things that are perhaps of common interest and of day-to-day mundanity, but not necessarily of eternal value or consequence. And I think compared to where we spend eternity, surely these things really have to take a back seat and we focus on the main thing. So I put it then, our response to the evil days that we're living in must be to become a beacon of light in a dark and dying world. We are to devote our time and effort to sharing Jesus, being his hands and feet to a dying world, and drawing all men and women to him through his Holy Spirit. We must use our time and talents and effort to serve Christ as he would want and not leave it for others to do. Now, I know that we are blessed to have links with NTM and other mission organizations which we support with prayer and with resources. And I'm really, really excited to know that right now, as I am speaking this very weekend, the Malayai people of Papua New Guinea are hearing the gospel for the very first time in their own heart language through the efforts of NTM missionaries who are serving there. Now, praise God for this. This is a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful blessing, and I would invite us all to be praying over this weekend that tomorrow, Monday, when they hear the resurrection story, that their Holy Spirit convicts them of their need for our Savior, Jesus, and they respond to this message in their own heart language. But this, of course, does not take away the fact that we support NTM. This does not take away from our individual responsibility that we have to share the gospel in our own mission field, wherever we may be. Christ has placed us in our own homes, in our own communities, in our workplaces. Wherever we may be, that is the mission field that God wants us to serve. The time we have now before us is the time that God wants us to use to work earnestly to share the good news of Jesus. As the Scottish missionary Robert Moffat once said, We shall have all eternity in which to celebrate our victories for Christ. But we only have one swift hour before the sunset in which to win them. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here it is again. Do not be foolish. Do not live for ourselves, but rather we are to know and understand the will of God for our lives. Now, as we stated earlier, foolishness can be characterized by living as if there is no God and therefore making ourselves the God of our own lives. In contrast, Paul invites us to live knowing that God deserves to have the prime spot in our lives and that we understand who he is and his will for our lives. But what is the will of God? Well, I believe that the Lord's Prayer provides a starting point for us to understand this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? Well, heaven is a community of beings in love with God and perfectly loving each other. The heavenly hosts know and understand who Jesus is and fall at his feet in adoration and worship of him and yet live together in a loving community with each other. Could that be God's will for us? That he wants us to look forward to and experience a life here where we too can love God and fall at his feet and worship him and be in community of love with each other and honor him as such. What an amazing joy to know that that could well be the will of God for our lives. Now, verse 18, the one perhaps most of us have been looking forward to. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, this verse alone could be a source for a full sermon series, I'm sure. Certainly a, 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 whole, uh, a whole sermon itself. Now, just as Paul makes a contrast between wise and unwise, here again he makes a contrast between being filled with God and filled with a fake substitute. This verse is about who or what we are going to allow to control us. Either the Holy Spirit is, or it's going to be something else. And whatever else it will be, it's going to be a poor substitute. Now, the very first thing that I want to make clear here and to reassure many of you here is that Paul is not saying that there should be a total abstinence from wine. Uh, that's obviously down to the individual situation or circumstances. Um, but what he's talking about here is becoming drunk, an excess of alcohol. Now, of course, this is in keeping with other passages in the New Testament that Paul wrote, um, and it's very wise counsel for Christians. God wants us to be sober and uh, to walk um, righteously within it as, as Christians. So drunkenness is not something that we need to be involved with. And if we were to stop merely there, then that would be a very valid point for us to leave and take away with. However, there is much more in the particular circumstance of Ephesus and the churches in that area that this admonition of Paul really speaks to, and uh, it's worth mentioning. You see, the city of Ephesus was known as a center of worship for Artemis, also known as Diana, um, but it was also a center of worship for Dionysus. And Dionysus is often portrayed as the god of wine. 
This isn't actually, strictly speaking, true. He was the god of wine, but wine was associated with Dionysus because of the method that followers of Dionysus used to actually get connected with Dionysus. Dionysus followers, or followers of Dionysus, would, as part of their worship, in an effort to connect with this particular deity, make themselves drunk on excess uh, alcohol so they could reach out to this false god. As Keener observed in his New Testament commentary, and I'll read directly from that, many people in the ancient world believed that drunkenness could produce a sort of inspiration or possession by Dionysus, god of wine. Dionysus' most active worshippers yield control of themselves to him and perform sexual acts or acts full of sexual symbolism, often to the distaste of conservative Romans. And here, Paul may contrast this behavior with inspiration by God's spirit. People did not think of Dionysus every time someone became drunk. However, drunkenness was more commonly associated simply with loss of self-control. So the suggestion in Ephesus is that some Christians were resorting to their previous practice of drunken, de drunken debauchery and thinking that that was how the true God wanted them to connect with him. Of course, they were wrong. God has given us his spirit and he wants his spirit to live within us and fill us so that we can actually commune and be in relationship with God. There is no other substitute. We don't need to go to our old practices before Christ in, in the hope that we will have some favor and merit with God. God gives us his spirit and says, this is how I want you to connect with me. Now the world is, is brilliantly expert at providing fake substitutes in all manner of things. Some of you might remember a TV advert that was a uh, I think it's a, a drink-aware TV advert from quite a few years ago. Um, and it, had a, it's, it, was, it was set um, late one evening, and there's a group of women walking um, home one night, and there's some scaffolding nearby. And one of the ladies is carrying a balloon. And the balloon flies from her hand and gets caught up in the scaffolding. And then suddenly, a would-be suitor who was walking around there is transformed into a costume superhero and proceeds to acrobatically make his way up the scaffolding, climbing up and swinging and doing all sorts of things to try to actually retrieve the balloon. And when he gets to the balloon, his superhero costume vanishes and we see exactly what he is. He's just a drunken man who's filled with this false confidence he loses his balance and falls, of course, and, 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 and is killed. The alcohol made him a hero, or at least think he was a hero, and that he was invincible. But ultimately, it cost him his life, and he slipped and fell to his death. And that's what alcohol does, doesn't it? It gives people a false sense of confidence. Ever heard the expression, Dutch courage? Yeah. Well, during the 17th century and the number of battles between England and the Netherlands, that's when the, f the term was first coined. We're not entirely sure which side first coined it, but it's based on the observation of soldiers preparing for battle, who 
who would literally get drunk on a type of gin to conquer their fears. Perhaps we've seen examples of that today as well, where people take on some Dutch courage to feel brave enough to talk to someone at a social event or some other such thing. Earlier today, I suggested that as Christians, our desire should be to use our time wisely in the evil days that we live in to share the gospel while we are free to do so. Because a time will come when even in our safe neighborhoods that we live in today, sharing Jesus will become a criminal, a criminal act, potentially, as it is in many other parts of the world. But the reason why we don't so often share the gospel is because we're afraid, we're frightened. And if that's the case, then we don't really need to rely on any Dutch courage. I'm not suggesting that we do. Um, but we don't need to rely on any artificial substitutes to complete our purpose. All we need is God's spirit empowering us from within, filling us with the courage to share the message of hope that Christ wants us to share. We should never rely on ourselves because we are empty vessels. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit and invite him in to provide us with what we need to be able to share. He alone can equip us to serve Jesus as Jesus would want. Now, what else will being filled with the Holy Spirit lead to our, in our lives? Well, earlier in Ephesians, we discovered that being filled with the Holy Spirit will be evident by our love. The love we have one for another as a community of believers will be astounding. Just to use this idea of, 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 of lessons from, from alcohol or drunkness one more, if I may. Have you ever seen drunk friends, perhaps, talking with each other? Maybe on a TV show or something like that. Sometimes you might hear them say things like, I love you, man. No, I love you, man. Yeah. There's this exchange, almost, of trying to outdo each other with this love that they have for each other. I love you, man. No, I love you. No, I love you. No, you love... And so it goes on. They seem to be literally trying to outdo each other with their declarations of love. And that's, of course, because of this freeing, if you will, that the alcohol provides for them. Friends, God doesn't want us to be filled with alcohol to be able to tell each other we love each other. God wants us to be filled with something far more amazing. He wants us to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And in so doing, that love will spontaneously come out to us and reach out within our community. How wonderful will it be to be a part of a community where love is our hallmark, our cornerstone. Love is everything that we are. Everything that we do as the body of Christ is, is built on love. God wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be living a life in tune with the Spirit. And the world will be shocked, stunned, and amazed to see the love of God alive and active. Today, as we celebrate our fellowship lunch, let's think about how we can allow God to provide us with what we need to be a community that really genuinely has love at its core. May we be so filled with love 
that our community around us see something different, that our homes are different, the relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ is different. Love, God's love, no other substitute. God's love is at the heart of it all. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, as I was reading and comparing Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, I was struck with just how similar it is in nature to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Both passages are a blueprint for a community that has the love of Christ at the heart of all things. As John MacArthur points out in his commentary on Ephesians, and I'll read the quote for you, the spirit-filled life produces music. Whether he has a good voice or cannot carry a tune, the spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Nothing is more indicative of a fulfilled life, a contented soul, and a happy heart than the expression of song. The first consequence of the spirit-filled life that Paul mentioned was not mountain-moving faith, an ecstatic spiritual experience, dynamic speaking ability, or any such thing. It's simply a heart that sings. When the believer walks in the Spirit, he has an inside joy that manifests itself in music. God puts music in the souls and then on the lips of his children who walk in obedience. Do we have a song in our heart? Do we have a word of praise or encouragement on our lips? Or are we running on empty and therefore becoming critical and unloving? harsh and scornful. God wants us to experience so much more than what we often settle for. We rob ourselves of the opportunities that God wants to bless us with. Why don't we just let him in? Why don't we just allow him to fill us? Verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we reach this final verse under consideration today, we see the complete outcome of a life that has been directed by the Spirit of God, a life that is able to give thanks to God always for everything, a life that is always ready to give thanks to God for everything under all circumstances, The late Billy Graham once said, a spirit of thankfulness is one of the most distinctive marks of a Christian whose heart is attuned to the Lord. Thank God in the midst of trials and every persecution. An attitude of gratitude must be our norm. 
Now, I enjoy watching different sports, and it's quite common to see many athletes now show gratitude to God when they do something good, like scoring a goal or making a basket in basketball or winning a race. They will often acknowledge God in their victory. An interesting story that I read about recently comes from the world of American football, and it involves a former Indianapolis Colts kicker called Matt Stover, and how he was reliant on God and praised God even in defeat. During the first quarter of the Super Bowl, 44, which took place in 2010, Stover made a 38-yard field goal and promptly pointed to the heavens, giving glory to God for his achievement. Standard. Of course, many players do that. However, in the fourth quarter of the game, with literally the game on the line, for those of us who are not familiar with American football, the fourth quarter is pretty much the final part of the game, the second half, the finals of football, as it were. Stover missed a 51-yard um, attempt at a goal. Once again, despite his failure, he pointed to the heavens. And this action did not go unnoticed by CBS announcers. One Jim Nance, who was reporting on that sporting event, made note of the action and praised Stover as a spiritual man, grateful for divine blessing in success and failure, victory and defeat. The world is watching. How we respond to both victory and defeat, the world is watching. Let's praise God in all things, because God knows how he will use this for his glory. The Bible teaches us to give glory to God in all that we do, and not just as if we are when we are successful. God receives much from glory when we praise him and remain faithful, even when things do not go the way we would like them to. Thankfulness is the answer here. Friends, Jesus wants us to experience a life filled with his spirit, a life that seeks to fulfill his will on earth, a life that knows the times in which we are living and wants to reach out and share the gospel. This can only be achieved if we are filled with him and we rely on him for the power to complete the Christian life. Our lives will be filled with love. Our lives will be filled with love for him, from him, and for each other. And this will be radical. A radical love that will change us forever. It will make us a light in a very, very dark world. Jesus offers us all of this for his glory. Let's resolve to make him reign in our hearts, reign in our lives with the light and spirit that he offers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, we are in awe that you love us the way that you do. There is nothing noble or worthy in any of us, Lord, but yet you Promise us your spirit to live and dwell within us and to make us your children. 
And not only that, Lord, you promise your Holy Spirit to fill us, to equip us, to be able to serve you and do that which you would want us to do. Lord, we simply ask and pray that you will remove whatever obstacles are in each and every one of our hearts and minds that are preventing us from allowing you to fill us with your Spirit. Lord, may we feed on the things that allow the Spirit to fill us, Lord, we pray. May we be enriched by your blessings in all things, Lord. Amen.